everybody, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Before I introduce today's guests, I just wanted to tell you that my new book with Glenn Mercer came out on Amazon yesterday, and if you buy it by October 18th at midnight and email us your Amazon receipt to chefajbonus at yahoo.com, we'll send you some amazing bonuses, including recipes that didn't make it in the book and the audio copy of the book. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce today's guest. I have been trying for six years to interview him. He is so busy working as a doctor that it's just been so hard to coordinate our schedules. So I'm very honored that I get to talk to him today. I think the only person that it took longer for me to nail down was somebody who I went after for 10 years, and that was Dr. Barbara Rolls. But he is definitely worth the wait. He comes to us from Montefiore Hospital in New York. He's a plant-based cardiologist, and he's going to be talking about confessions of a plant-based cardiologist. Please welcome Dr. Robert Osfeld. It's so good to see you. Chef AJ, thank you so much for having me on. And uh, I'm so sorry about having it be so difficult to get me on. Uh, I'm, I'm, it is such a pleasure to be here with you and your audience and your book, Own Your Health, looks fantastic. Um, well, I, mean, I, think we, I think we met, it was maybe at the, in Marshall, Texas at a conference. That is exactly where we met. And remember, I was being a little bit uh, funny, if you know what I mean. And, and, and I was trying to to, I was trying to fix you up back then with the, with the audience, and we, we had a lot of fun, and you, you had a great sense of humor, and I really liked you, and, and I love your presentations, but I just like your, you have a very easygoing personality, and you're just easy. I, I imagine you're a great doctor. I try to send people to you all the time because you practice what you preach. Yeah, well, I mean, thank you. You're very generous, and you were just an awesome speaker and MC at that uh, event, and, um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, I do try to walk the walk. Um, and I learned from, you know, people like you and uh, Dr. Esselstyn and Dr. Campbell and lots of other wonderful uh, uh, physicians and healthcare providers and chefs and um, thought leaders. And, you know, and uh, so, yeah, I'm, you know, as I'll talk about in my talk, I've been a cardiologist now for about 17 years. Oh, my God. And outside of a medical emergency, like somebody gets shot and has to be put back together again. I've never seen anything come close to the breadth and depth of benefits that a plant-based diet provides. And, and you're so passionate about it. And I hope at some point you can talk about what you've done at the hospital, but I mean, the work you're doing is, is, is so great how you're educating people. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. I'll weave that into the, to the talk. And so since I'm like not super great at tech, I'm gonna to try to share the screen and pull that off now. I can let me know if that's going okay. And when it doesn't work out well, I just usually call my nephew. And he's like, <laughs> I know. Yeah. And he's probably six years old. <laughs> exactly. And I know there's a button that's screen share. And so yeah. as long as you have your presentation up on your screen, Got it. I it think you'll be able to do it. You did it. Oh yeah. That's so great. It's just, you might want to just make it so that we just see the slide instead of your, yep. You got it. There you go. All right. Nephew Trevor, are you proud of uncle Rob? <laughs> so, um, well, so Confessions of a Reformed Cardiologist, a plant-based diet in your heart. Uh, I'm that uh, cardiologist. And, uh, you know, um, I spent a lot of years going through medical training, um, you know, med school, four years of med school, three years of residency, four years of fellowship, getting a master's along the way. And I learned a lot of incredible stuff, you know, uh, procedures, medications, et cetera but I learned virtually nothing about nutrition. And after like those 11 or so years, when I finished up, I kind of knew that maybe a Mediterranean style diet was pretty healthy, but I couldn't really quite define it. 
And that was about that. So then I, I went down to Montefiore to start to work to do all the things that I was trained to do. Um, and, you know, I'd encourage people with medications and procedures and maybe Mediterranean style diet. And people got like a little bit better, but not a lot better. And I didn't go into medicine to get people like just a little bit better. So I was really getting disillusioned. And it was right around then that I learned about the impact of a plant-based diet. One thing led to another and started our cardiac wellness program at Montefiore with the goal of preventing disease with a plant-based diet. And I say disease, not just heart disease, because sure, it's good for your heart, but it's good for you for dozens and dozens of other reasons. And we quite literally have patients crying tears of joy in our office. They feel so much better. And like, you know, nobody cries tears of joy when I write them prescriptions for, you know, medications and stuff. Um, so it's really been just a, an amazing kind of arc to be able to see this happen. And, and in terms of what we do, I'll, I'll get into some of the, the, the body of my talk in a moment, but in terms of what we do at Montefiore, we kind of have three prongs of our program. We've got a clinical prong, an educational prong, and a research prong. And the clinical prong has two parts. There's an outpatient part and an inpatient part. And the outpatient part came first 10, 11 years ago. And what we did is, you know, I encourage patients to have a plant-based diet whenever I see them in clinic and we have handouts for them. And we have these Saturday morning sessions that are five hours long where I speak and, and RD, Lauren Graf speaks, we serve lunch. We, take, we encourage people to come with a friend or significant other to help them along the way. Um, and we take a deep dive into the how and why of plant-based nutrition. And you know, there's a very large indigent patient population at Montefiore where I work. So we don't charge patients for these sessions. I fund it all through donations. And uh, you know, I wanna democratize this information as much as possible. So that's, that, and that's sort of a real thumbnail, our outpatient arm. And, but I also round in the, in the hospital or inpatient like eight weeks or so a year. And so I go, I talk to one of the inpatients and I go rah, rah plants and then like I'd leave and dinner would be served and it was chicken. And like, I'm totally undercut. I'm like, this is not working. So I had a chance to um, uh, meet with food services and nutrition and long story short, we developed plant-based meals for inpatients. So now you can order a plant-based meal for an inpatient and it comes with, um, we have like a whole week's worth of a menu. And if you're interested in learning about the how or why, we published it, the, a sort of a kind of a quasi how-to in Dr. Kim Williams's new journal, the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention. It was the second issue of that. And we have a kind of a how-to in there. But it comes with a handout. Uh, and we also have the documentary film, Forks Over Knives, playing on continuous loop on the inpatient TVs and in like three or five hospitals. I lost, I lost track exactly. Um, and uh, with Spanish subtitles. So now I can go in, tell them about go rah rah plants, give them the meals. Uh, they get a handout, we can put on documentary. So it's you know it's nice to have my plant posse with me, if you will. So that's our clinical, and we have an educational arm where we get to speak a lot. Like right now, I get to speak to Chef AJ and her incredible audience, um, and we uh, you know uh, various talks along the way. And kind of I guess sort of like the cornerstone of our educational arm is our annual preventive cardiology conference, which would have been in its fourth year now, but COVID kind of put a kibosh on that. 
So we've, uh, we, we took a pause this year. We've done it three years in a row. We were very fortunate. It sold out each year, we're very lucky. Um, and so that's been the cornerstone of our educational arm. And our research arm, we've had the opportunity to publish some research, uh, review articles and case series, and we're about to launch our first randomized controlled trial, which I'm very excited about. Um, so that's kind of our program in a nutshell. Um, and so I thought I'd start with a case about a patient who I saw very early on in our program that let me kind of know that we were on a good path. Um, and so this is Mr. C and he's a 60 he's a year old guy and he was getting chest pain um, and he would get it with like less and less activity. And he like, you know, first was walking a few blocks and even sometimes sitting still, get chest pressure. And he went and he saw his local primary care doctor and he did a stress test and a stress test was positive. And it's only in medicine that something positive is bad. So that may, means that the stress test showed that he had evidence of major cholesterol blockages in the blood vessels that feed his heart with blood. Uh, but he told his doc and later told us, I don't want any, any procedures, nothing stuck to me. So no cardiac catheterizations, no procedures. And I don't want to take any of those cholesterol lowering pills. Hey, the patient's the boss at the end of the day, you know, whatever you make, they make an, if they make an informed decision, that's that. He wouldn't even take an aspirin. So no medications, no procedures. So all we had left was lifestyle change. So um, this is uh, how he was when we first met him. He was a little overweight, his blood pressure is a little high, his LDL cholesterol is quite high, and he could walk like one to three blocks and then he'd get chest pain. Uh, so, and uh, what we're gonna do is later on circle back to him to see how he did on a plant-based diet. So I want you all just to think for a moment, um, take a guess in your mind, like what percentage of 12 to 14 year olds in the US have early signs of cholesterol disease in the blood vessels that feed their hearts with blood. I think Chef AJ has got like, I don't know, to keep the nut like, like all. <laughs> I was gonna say like all of them probably a hundred percent. Well, it's, uh, it's scary. You're absolutely right. And it's about 65, about 65% of kids between the ages of 12 and 14 have very early signs of cholesterol disease in the blood vessels that feed their hearts with blood. And we know this from pathology studies of kids who died for other reasons. Um, so it's a real problem. Um, and about two heart attacks happen every minute in the US. So we've been talking 10 minutes, I don't know, 20 heart attacks. A heart attack is when part of the heart muscle dies from a cholesterol blockage. And uh, it's the number one killer of adult men and adult women in the U.S. Now, transiently this year, COVID was number one. But other than the flu pandemic in 1918, for the last 100 years, other than a couple months with COVID, uh, it was the number one killer of adult men and adult women in the, the U.S., cardiovascular. Um, and women are about six to seven times more likely to die from cardiovascular disease than they are from breast cancer. So it clearly highlights the epidemiologic importance of cardiovascular disease for women. It's a very expensive disease process. About half of heart attacks happen in people with quote normal cholesterol levels. So in a country where it is normal to die from heart disease, I think our entire notion of normal is anything um, but. Um, and an unhealthful diet, according to uh, the Global Burden of Disease study published in Lancet, is the leading cause of preventable cardiovascular death. And uh, in this very interesting study in JAMA, 
they looked at the proportional cardiometabolic mortality, meaning heart attack, stroke, and diabetes, attributable to dietary habits in the U.S. in 2012. So here, high sodium intake, a major problem, low nuts and seeds, high processed meats. Here they have low seafood, um, low vegetables, low fruits. And now I should go back to high processed meats. How do they define high? More than none. Um, high sugar sweetened beverages, how do they define high? More than none. Um, so it's interesting to be able to break it down by dietary component in that study. And so this is a picture of a heart and this is a normal artery. This is a normal artery here. And this, of course, because I went to medical school, I can tell you it's abnormal, right? So you can see uh, tons of cholesterol grummets in the wall here. This is the center of the artery where the blood flows. This is the inner lining of the wall of the artery, the endothelial cell, one cell layer thick. It's kind of like wallpaper on the wall. Um, and we'll dive into that a little bit more, but you want to treat those endothelial cells well. Um, so here's another picture of three arteries. Uh, this is the center of the artery where the blood flows. And what happened, but how do we get from where we want to be with a normal artery to where we don't want to be with uh, all that cholesterol disease? Well, what happens is those endothelial cells get injured, whether that's from a toxic Western diet, smoking, pollution, inflammation, some combination, they become injured. And when that happens, cholesterol particles burrow from the bloodstream into the wall of the artery where they become oxidized and irritating like a splinter. And like if you've had a splinter in your finger, it gets all red and inflamed and kind of painful. Well, it's the same sort of thing, except in the wall of your artery, exactly where you do not want it. Um, and so what uh, happens is um, it creates more and more inflammation with that splinter-like oxidized LDL particle, more oxidative stress, the endothelial cells get sicker, more cholesterol particles burrow across, the artery, artery gets less healthful every second of every day, the plaque grows and grows. Um, and then the only thing ultimately separating the cholesterol plaque from where the blood flows is this thin fibrous cap, who cares? Well, you never want this cholesterol plaque to touch the blood because it makes the blood clot. And so what happens is more oxidative stress, more inflammation, the fibrous cap gets thinner and thinner and weaker and weaker till one random Tuesday afternoon, it cracks. And then this cholesterol plaque hits the blood and it can clot and no more blood flow down the artery. Well, then no more blood, no food for whatever this artery is, is feeding, whether it's the heart or the brain for a stroke or something. And that is obviously a major problem. That's an emergency. If this happens, you want to stent right away. We want to avoid prevent this from happening. So we're going to talk a bit about a plant-based diet, a bit about a Mediterranean-style diet compared to a plant-based diet. We'll talk a bit about a ketogenic or a low-carb diet, uh, an animal-based one, and compare that to a plant-based diet. We'll make some conclusions. So just so that we're kind of on the same page, as you all well know, a plant-based diet basically includes minimally processed plant-based foods, tons of vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, yams, nuts, and seeds. Um, and I'll start with Dr. Esselstyn's great work, and his is some of the work that helped me get interested in this uh, in the first place, and I'm very fortunate to be able to call him and his family both friends and mentors. And in this analysis of patients 
with known coronary artery disease. So those stable cholesterol blockages, like a cholesterol blockage like that, um, known coronary artery disease, um, he put them on basically a plant-based diet. And they were about on average 63 years of age to begin, followed them for almost four years. And almost all, 89% were adherent to a whole food plant-based diet. And of those who adhered, 112 had chest pain and it improved in 104. That's pretty impressive. 27 avoided previously suggested stent or bypass surgery, and they lost on average about 18 pounds. And of those 177 patients, what they concluded, they concluded that um, major cardiac events judged to be recurrent disease was one. So they concluded a 0.6% event rate. That's exquisitely low. Of the 21 patients who were not adherent, 13 had a recurrent event, 62%. So 62 versus 0.6. Now this is just, this is a case series, but it's not like a randomized trial comparing non-adherent to adherent, but it's a very, very impressive difference. Um, and I wanna compare that to the COURAGE trial. And the reason is, is because the COURAGE trial, just like Dr. Esselstyn's study was in patients with stable cholesterol blockages. And the COURAGE trial, what they did is they randomized 2,200 or so patients to one of two groups. Group number one was medications and, um, you know, please be a little healthier versus medications, please be a little healthier and a stent to open up the blockage. And it turns out after almost five years, there was no meaningful survival difference or heart attack difference between the groups. Uh, chest pain got better a little bit more quickly in the stent group, um, but they equalized after a couple of years. Um, so I wanna compare Esselstyn's study, which I'm calling here whole food plant-based or W versus courage. So um, in the in Esselstyn study, they started with a total cholesterol of about 237 and with a combination of medications and lifestyle got down to about 137. In courage, they got down to about 141, so pretty similar. And their LDL cholesterols were also pretty similar uh, at the end of the study. Um, but look at these event rates. The event rate in Dr. Esselstyn's adherent group was 0.6%. In Courage, it was 19, they had a 19% cardiovascular event rate. Now, these are two different studies comparing apples and oranges, but it's very interesting and hypothesis generating. Even if Dr. Esselstyn was off by a factor of 10, it's still about three times lower than what they saw encouraged. So very impressive. So what accounts for this difference, 0.6 versus 19? I don't know, but my hypothesis is that when you get yourself to an LDL in the 70s on a path that includes a plant-based diet, sure, it's good for your uh, cholesterol, but it's good for you for dozens and dozens of other reasons accounting for this difference. That's my hypothesis. So let's just remind me, the, in the plant-based diet, chest pain improved in 93% of patients. That's the angina. How about encourage, which included stents? Oops. Um, hang on, hang on, sorry. 73. 73% improved. Uh, what about preventing procedures? Well, in the plant-based study, uh, they prevented uh, 27 bypass surgeries for planned stents. How about encourage? Well, what I did to be fair is I didn't include the arm that was initially randomized to stents because sometimes you have to go back for another procedure. So I just left them out to be as fair as possible. So the group that was randomized to lifestyle medications 
How many procedures, planned procedures did they prevent? None. There were 340 new procedures. So it went in completely the opposite direction. How about lifestyle? Well, in the plant-based arm, they lost about 18 pounds on average. And uh, how about um, uh, in the COURAGE trial where they encouraged people to be healthier? Well, there they gained about three pounds. So it's a swing of about 21 pounds. Um, so, all right. And there are also, there's randomized control studies where uh, Dr. Ornish's great lifestyle heart study where uh, patients randomized to essentially a plant-based diet uh, and psychosocial support um, and regular exercise versus expert care from cardiologists, just like me. Those randomized to the intervention arm, the, the lifestyle change had a significant reduction in um, uh, cardiac events down the line and also with angina. Um, Plant-based diet improves lots of risk factors as well. CRP is a blood test, which is a measure of inflammation. And we know inflammation promotes all aspects of atherosclerosis as, as well as a variety of other diseases. And in a really cool study called Evade CAD, they took people with stable coronary artery disease and they randomized them to either the American Heart Association diet or a plant-based diet. Guess which one won? The plant-based diet significantly lowered inflammation more than the American Heart Association diet. What about cholesterol? Well, in a very interesting randomized trial by Dr. Jenkins, a portfolio plant-based diet, which is kind of high, quite high in fiber, um, lowered LDL about the same amount as, uh, as did a, um, a low dose of a statin. And we talked about how oxidized LDL particles are particularly irritating like a splinter. Well, it is more, when you have, for LDL particles, if you're a vegetarian versus an omnivore, it's more difficult to get the LDL particles oxidized if you're a vegetarian. So it somehow helps protect from that as well. Um, blood pressure, um, randomized trials of eating much more of a plant-based diet, not exclusively also plant-based in the DASH study, lowered blood pressure more than a typical omnivorous diet and a variety of prospective color studies show that the more plant-based you eat is associated with a lower blood pressure. We call high blood pressure the silent killer because it kills you, but you don't really feel it. Um, and there's a variety of other uh, ways that consuming a plant-based diet is helpful. And in the interest of time, maybe I'll just talk about the microbiome a little bit. And um, you know, depending on time at the end, it could circle back and talk about some of these other things as well. Well, the, so the microbiome, we each have like about a trillion gut bacteria hanging out on us right now. So you can really say that we're the parasites, not them. Um, but we really live symbiotically with them and they're intimately woven into our health. And the healthier you eat, particularly high fiber, diverse plant-based foods, because there's no fiber in animal-based foods. So a variety of plant-based foods feeds and nourishes a healthful microbiome. Who cares? Well, if you have a healthful microbiome, they make things called uh, short-chain fatty acids and like, like butyrate, for example. And that short-chain fatty acid first goes and feeds and nourishes the inner lining of the gut wall. Um, and that makes the gut healthier, less inflammation within the gut. And it also seeps into the wall of the gut um, where it does a variety of things, reducing cholesterol formation, seeping into the bloodstream, can help with insulin resistance, can help uh, 
with uh, improving blood vessel function, reducing inflammation, and it may even help with mood. So they talk about the, the brain-gut connection. Well, there it is for you. And of course, uh, we know eating more uh, red meat um, can lead to a variety of problems, but one of them being the formation of trimethylamine oxide, which promotes cardiovascular disease. And higher levels in your body is associated with worse outcome. Um, and so if you eat more animal-based foods, you select for the kind of gut bacteria that can help lead to the formation of TMAO through interactions with red meat. Uh, so the microbiome is intimately involved in our health um, and eating more of a plant-based diet selects for and promotes a more healthful microbiome pattern. Um, diabetes, uh, very important, obviously. The, uh, this wonderful study by Dr. Barnard, they took people with type two or adult onset diabetes and randomized them to either a plant-based uh, a diet or the American Diabetes Association diet. And guess which one won? The plant-based diet. The plant-based diet reduced, they reduced meds more, they lost more weight, their cholesterol fell more. And for those who did not reduce their medications, um, when you were on the plant-based arm, the vegan arm, which is blue here, their hemoglobin A1C fell significantly more than those who had the American Diabetes Association diet. Um, and the hemoglobin A1C is a blood metric of uh, diabetes and lower being better. So in a variety of uh, prospective cohort studies also have similar findings that eating more plant-based nutrition is associated with less diabetes. For example, in the Seventh-day Adventist, an analysis of the Seventh-day Adventist study, the Seventh-day Adventists, of course, a religious organization that treat their bodies like a temple. In this analysis, eating uh, meat at least weekly, at least just weekly versus none was associated with the 74% higher odds of having diabetes. It's impressive. Um, and of course the devil's in the details, right? Like you could be plant-based and eat sugar cookies all day. You could be plant-based and eat kale. And does that make a difference? Well, Dr. Satija in this wonderful analysis of about 200,000 people with 4.8 million person years of follow-up so if you follow me in a study for one year, that's one person here. They have 4.8 million, that's a lot. So what they asked is, does it matter if you eat a healthful plant-based diet, an unhealthful plant-based diet, is there a difference? So this blue line here, this is a plant-based diet. So just no animal foods. And the more of a plant-based diet you ate, the better you did. But is there a difference between kale and cookies? Well. The red line here, that's kale. That's minimally processed plant-based foods. And the more you ate of that, you did even better. But what about the cookies? That's the unprocessed or unhealthy, excuse me, the processed or unhealthy plant-based diet. That's this line up here. You did, you did worse, um, more coronary heart disease. And if you look over here, this yellowish line, that's a healthy plant-based diet. You did better. This red line, this is animal-based foods. The more you ate of animal-based foods in this analysis, you did worse. But what about this line right above it? That's the unhealthy plant-based diet. In this analysis, if you ate cookies, you might have been plant-based, but you did even worse than animal-based foods. So the devil, of course, is in the detail. Um, and large meta-analyses show that even for every serving of fruit and vegetable extra per day you ate, is associated with a 5% reduction in mortality. But you don't have to go all the way. And plenty of my patients don't. Plenty of my patients who come to see me, they've never heard about plant-based nutrition. 
when I first start talking to them. They look at me like I'm from Mars. But the, this is a really interesting analysis where they asked, what if you replace just three, just 3% 3 of your calories from animal protein with 3% of calories from plant-based protein? Does it matter? It does. Um, and so in this analysis of 130,000 people with 3.5 million person years of follow-up, if you replace just 3% of your calories from processed red meat with 3% of calories from plant-based protein, that's associated with a 34% lower hazard of death. Unprocessed red meat, 12%. And we know that the World Health Organization has come out and said that uh, processed red meat is a class one carcinogen, meaning it causes cancer. And unprocessed red meat is a class 2A carcinogen, meaning it likely causes cancer. Uh, poultry here, 6%, fish, 6%, eggs, 19%, dairy, 8%. Um, so with a plant-based diet, you improve outcomes with coronary artery disease, it improves a variety of risk factors, some novel risk factors, and is associated with living longer. Uh, what about a Mediterranean-style diet? And this is important to point out because in a very interesting analysis in JAMA Internal Medicine, uh, just in June, Dr. Willett was one of the authors, they looked at a variety of healthy eating patterns, a Mediterranean pattern, an alternative healthy eating pattern, a plant-based pattern, and the healthiest versions of all those different diets, a major commonality of them is they are largely plant-based. The, the healthiest Mediterranean isn't completely, the healthiest alternative healthy eating index isn't completely, but they are predominantly plant-based. And the, the healthier the version you ate of any one of those, you did better than a less healthful version. So there are a variety of healthful eating patterns. Um, uh, and we certainly want to help our patients get at least part of the way there. But a, and a Mediterranean style dietary pattern is certainly more healthful than a Western diet. In the Young Diet Heart Study, which was after heart attacks, um, there was versus a Western style diet, people did substantially better on a Mediterranean style diet. And the PrediMed study, which was a study of patients with, at risk for, but without overt, coronary artery disease, a Mediterranean-style diet did better than a more typical Western-style diet. But it's what's particularly interesting to me in the PrediMed study is they did, they figured at before they even did the study, they were going to do this analysis. So it's not like cherry picking at the end. They said, well, we know that eating plants is healthful. Well, let's see if someone had a pro-vegetarian dietary pattern under the umbrella of the, the, the PrediMed study, was it helpful? Was it not helpful? Well, it turns out it was helpful. And they defined a pro-vegetarian dietary pattern here as vegetables, fruits, legumes, potatoes, nuts, and no animal products at all, none. So if you were in the highest quintile of a pro-vegetarian dietary pattern versus the lowest, you had a 41% lower hazard of death. And in the Greek epic perspective cohort, uh, where they followed about 23,000 people for a little over eight years, um, and the higher of a Mediterranean diet score you ate, the better you did. Um, so that's cool. But, and they had so much, so much data, they could say like which aspect of the Mediterranean diet was driving the benefit. So here, moderate alcohol consumption was low meat consumption, high vegetable consumption, high fruit and nut consumption, um, high monounsaturated saturated fat ratio, so more plants, high legume uh, consumption, Cereal and dairy had a minimal impact. And in this analysis, fish and seafood had a trend toward increasing mortality. And if you look at the percent diabetics in the Seventh-day Adventists, the only, this is a, uh, think about it, an N of 60,000. The only group, the, the group with the lowest um, amount of 
the percentage of diabetes was the vegans compared to lacto-ovo vegetarians, pesco vegetarians, semi-vegetarians, and non-vegetarians. Um, sorry. And body mass index, which is a measure, a good epidemiologic measure of weight and size, uh, less than 25 is normal. And looking at all these different dietary patterns, the only group with a quote, normal body mass index was the vegans. So in terms of a Mediterranean style diet, it appears that the more plant-based, it's certainly a healthier eating style than a Western diet. And the more plant-based the Mediterranean style diet appears, the more optimal based on clinical and mechanistic studies. So let's dive into a keto and low carb dietary pattern. And here I mean an animal-based one. I'm not talking about a plant-based one. There's much less data with that. I'm talking about an animal-based keto or low carb diet. And I think it's largely based on a popular myth. And that popular myth is in 1980, they told us to eat low fat. Look at us now, we're fat and sick. Okay, they may have told us to eat low fat, but we didn't do it. We ate more of everything, including fat. So it's just fake news. So there is, uh, to my knowledge, no long living society lives in a state of chronic ketosis. Now, there's a little bit of a romantic notion about the, in, uh, the Inuit population that lived like circumpolar, way, way far north. They ate a lot of fish and they you know, had no heart disease. That's not true. They have a similar amount of cardiovascular disease as uh, Canadians. And they even have a mutation that makes it a little harder for them to go into ketosis, suggesting that being in a ketotic state chronically is not helpful. The blue zones, which are, of course, as this group well knows, the longest living populations in the world, the most centenarians, five blue zones across the globe. And what's a commonality? Their diet is at least more than 50% carbs. It's not junk food carbs, it's beans, lentils, you know, uh, vegetables, fruits. Uh, so more than 50% carbs, the longest living populations in the world. And there's the Simon pop, uh, uh, indigenous population in Bolivia, and they were studied with CAT scans of all things. Um, uh, and they had the lowest rates of heart disease ever recorded in the medical literature. And their heart disease rates, they're pound for pound, their arterial age is about 25 years younger than us in, in the US. Pretty impressive. The lowest rates of heart disease ever recorded in the medical literature. And what's their diet? 74% carbs. Um, so there are no hard outcome studies, meaning heart attack, stroke with ketogenic diet. We need more data. There's, there are multiple side effects. It is used for refractory epilepsy in the pediatric population. It can be helpful there. Um, but it's usually started in the hospital because they have a lot of side effects, as you can see here. And there's a variety of reasons that it's harmful. You know, the heme iron in animal uh, uh, red meat is, uh, uh, can be pro-inflammatory, associated with more uh, diabetes. Uh, NU5GC is a sialic acid that's on the cell membrane of non-human primates. I say non-human because we diverged from this evolutionary line many, many, many years ago. And so it's kind of interesting. These investigators in San Diego said, you know, if you eat new when we eat red meat, bad things seem to happen to us like cancer and heart disease, but when true carnivores, which we're not, but true carnivores eat red meat, they don't seem to have the same problem. So they're like, well, maybe it has something to do with new 5 gc because when true carnivores 
eat the red meat with new 5GC, they have it. It's not a foreign compound for them. But when we eat red meat, putting aside the other aspects, the new 5GC, our body may see as foreign. And what happens is we take it up into our cells and uh, we express it on cell membranes and you can attack it and it creates inflammation. And in animal models that were engineered to look like us, um, rats or mice with no new 5GC, so look like us. When they feed them new 5GC, they get like five times more cancer, more inflammation. And these investigators hypothesize that a similar process is happening in us, and they're starting to develop data in that area. That when we eat red meat, we treat the new 5GC as foreign, creating a very significant inflammatory response, promoting a variety of diseases. Eating more animal based foods promotes a less healthful microbiome, raises LDL cholesterol, and LDL cholesterol is intimately related with the development of and progression of atherosclerosis, and of course, antioxidants uh, as well. Uh, there are about 60, on average, 64 times more antioxidants in plant-based foods versus animal. For example, berries have 90 times more antioxidants than do fish. So why in the world do people actually do a low-carb diet? Well, they do it for weight loss and they do it for blood sugar diabetes, um, and it is very helpful for short-term weight loss. Um, and you know, it's for a few reasons. The first is you use up all your sort of sugar energy stores, your glycogen, and they, those hold water. When you use them up, you pee out water. Uh, the ketones themselves are water avid that you would use to replace the sugar energy, use the fat energy of ketones, and they're water soluble. Uh, so they pull water with them. And then you get something called the keto flu. So you kind of like feel crummy, so you don't necessarily eat as much. And so it is good for short-term weight loss. But in a meta-analysis of 13 studies lasting more than a year, a, uh, a lower carb uh, dietary pattern only really led to that less than a kilogram of weight loss difference versus a higher carb, lower fat pattern. Um, and with diabetes, um, you know, in a meta-analysis of long-term, in short-term, it could help with blood sugar a little bit because you're not, you're not eating any carbs or you're not eating any uh, things with sugar and so your blood sugar is going to go down but outside of weight loss it's not clear that that actually reverses insulin resistance and a meta-analysis of long-term randomized controlled trials found no difference in glycemic control in a ketogenic versus higher carb lower fat dietary patterns and a variety of epidemiologic studies suggest that eating more of a lower carb dietary pattern is associated with worse outcomes across a, a number of different health metrics and populations and of course, you're leaving out some of the healthiest foods in the world if you go low carb, which is whole grains. And in a meta-analysis of uh, with 135 million person years of follow-up, eating more whole grains was associated with living longer, less cancer, less diabetes, pulses are associated with living longer, and fruits are among the healthiest foods in the world. Um, and in this really cool study by Dr. Dew, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, they asked if you ate more fresh fruit, is it helpful? Is it not helpful? Turns out it's helpful. So the more fresh fruit you ate in this study was associated with less incident diabetes in 480,000 people. Um, and what about if you had diabetes in the first place when you started the study? They had 30,000 people who had diabetes in the first place. And if you ate more fresh fruit and had diabetes, you did better. You had lower, significantly lower all-cause mortality by eating more servings of fresh fruit. And also in this analysis, you know, eating more fresh fruit associated with less cardiovascular death, stroke, et cetera. 
Um, and so in terms of a ketogenic diet, no long living population to my knowledge is in a state of chronic ketosis, no, no hard outcomes. Uh, we need safety data. Epi and mechanistic studies do not support benefits and suggest harm. They're giving up some of the healthiest foods in the world. Now, remember, this is an animal-based keto diet. And so if you looked at a plant-based versus a Mediterranean versus a lower-carb dietary pattern for 500 calories, uh, the plant, this is a plant-based arm, Mediterranean low-carb. The plant-based is equal parts of tomato, spinach, lima bean, peas, and potatoes. The Mediterranean was about 40% in, in our analysis here, 40% of the plant-based arm and a half a piece of skimless chicken, one teaspoon of olive oil, and one cup of 1% milk. And the low carb is equal parts beef, pork, chicken, and whole milk. Cholesterol, you don't need to eat a drop. Your body makes all you need. Protein, oh my God, my muscles are gonna fall apart tomorrow. You don't have to take my word for it. You can take Patrick Baboumian's word for it. I'm sure many of you know, the world's strongest man, and he's vegan. And how do I know he's the world's strongest man? Well, because he won the world's strongest man contest. That's how I know. Beta carotene, it's subtle. Dietary fiber, your constipation will go away. Iron, oh my God, I'm going to become anemic tomorrow. Calcium, my bones are going to fall. Uh, so this is your health insurance. Let food be thy medicine, medicine be thy food. This is a great quote from Dr. Kim Williams past president of the American College of Cardiology. I recommend a plant-based diet because I know it's gonna lower their blood pressure, improve their insulin sensitivity and decrease their cholesterol. This is a busy slide, but it's a really, really cool study. So I wanted to bring it up. And so in this analysis, you know, one of the reasons I bring it up is because a lot of times I hear, well, Dr. Osfeld, their diabetes runs in my family, runs in my family, so I'm gonna get it. Well, genes matter, but lifestyle matters, of course, too. So here, they, they took about 2,000 or so patients and they, they looked at a genetic risk score with about 26 different genes and the more, and they asked, you know, if you have more of the, of the less healthful gene patterns, is it better, is it worse? And so if you had a high genetic risk, um, you did worse than if you had low genetic risk, all right, no surprise. But what's really cool about this study is they put people first into three categories, low genetic risk, intermediate genetic risk, and high genetic risk, and high genetic risk did worse, but then, they split them into the tertiles of lifestyle, a favorable lifestyle, an intermediate lifestyle, and an unfavorable lifestyle. And if you went from an unfavorable lifestyle to a favorable lifestyle in the high genetic risk arm, you lowered your risk of a future event by about 50%. So genes matter, but lifestyle matters too. How did you get into the favorable lifestyle arm? Well, you exercised at least once a week. Imagine if you exercise five times a week and you ate more healthfully than 50% of the people in the study. What if you ate more healthfully than 95% of the people in the study? You'd imagine it'd get even lower. Uh, so genes matter, lifestyle matters too. So circling back to our early on patient who wouldn't take any medications, wouldn't have any procedures, went plant-based, lost a lot of weight, blood pressure normalized, cholesterol fell 70 or so points. You could walk about a mile. I can't really see this, but I think this is after about three or four months. Um, walked about a mile. Then you get chest pain. Fast forward about a year, weight's good, blood pressure's good, cholesterol is low, he could jog two miles. Fast forward two, three years ago, I bumped into him and he jogs four miles now and he stops because he gets bored. 
So a plant-based diet is supported by epidemiologic and mechanistic studies and a head-to-head -head trial versus a Mediterranean style diet is suggested. I think there's one ongoing now. Um, and in terms of the Mediterranean style diet, the more plant-based the diet, it seems the more optimal the outcome. And with the keto diet, we need more data. Um, uh, we certainly need more, more data with an animal-based keto and, and a plant-based keto diet um, may have uh, some health benefits and, and we just need more data. Um, and there's, there's a little bit of suggestion that a plant-based keto diet may be more helpful, but we'll have to see where that settles out. Uh, so thank you very much. Wow, that was incredible. I, you know, I didn't realize you could assess your arterial health. Can, can all of us do that? Well, there's a variety of ways that, that, we, can, that we can do that. Um, and typically what we do in clinic is we assess someone's 10-year risk with the American College of Cardiology, 10-year risk score, possibly a lifetime risk score. And that gives you a ballpark estimate of your future risk of um, having a future cardiac event. But then we can take closer looks at um, the arteries themselves without having to do a catheterization, which is invasive and you can have a complication. So there are coronary calcium scores that some people like to get. You can get a non-invasive um, coronary CT angiogram, which looks more specifically at blockages, but that requires contrast and more radiation. So those are the things we typically use in clinic. Now there are research ways where you can look at blood vessel function, um, but we don't typically use them uh, in day-to-day uh, -day practice. If you like Dr. Osfeld, you can take you, you can stop sharing your screen so we can see you a little bit larger because. Okay. You know, I remember once I was in a very bad car accident and I had to get some kind of a CAT scan or something. And they said my, they, they couldn't believe that my arteries were just like, they, there was no plaque. Whoa, wait, you got a CAT scan, there's no plaque? Yeah, so I, I, you know, I've been vegan for over 43 years and it was about, you know, it was a few years ago and I was in a very serious car accident. So I had to get a CAT scan and they, they said, I, we've never seen this before. There's no plaque in your arteries, you know, meaning the carotids, because they, I, yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, first of all, that's awesome. I'm really, really glad uh, to hear that. And, you know, it's sort of, it's anecdotal, but it speaks to the theme that atherosclerosis doesn't need to be a fait accompli. You know, there are indigenous populations where, you know, when they get older, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, their blood pressures are just as low as when they were 15 years old. Um, and those populations are almost exclusively plant-based and they obviously do a lot of physical activity and stuff. But so it's not necessarily a fait accompli. I remember one time I went to a conference, uh, American College of Cardiology conference, I think when I was a cardiology fellow. And I was kind of interested in prevention, but not to any way the mature-ish or mature way that I am now. But like, I heard this talk where they had these, they found these Egyptian mummies and like all of them had atherosclerosis. I'm like, oh man, like you can't really, I'm thinking, well, they had it way back then. Like, how could you ever prevent it? They just can't prevent it. But then I started thinking about it more. I'm like, wait, hang on a second. Who are the people that get mummified? They're like the kings and queens. They're the ones eating, you know, all the super rich, fatty, meaty foods. They're not like mummifying the people, the peasants like me, you know, working on the farm. Uh, so uh, I, I regained hope. <laughs> and you have now... You are the cherry on top 
of that home. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I wonder if I even kept the, the you know, the, the, the screen, the films they give you, I'll, I'll look. And if I do, I'll send them to you just to prove it. I will definitely look. So Denny, who's watching live says, I had a heart attack and now I'm plant-based. How long does it take for the arteries to be cleaned out? My last stress and echo were good. How long until I don't have risk? Well, unfortunately, there's nothing's going to make you bulletproof. And it's going to be incredibly important for you to have a combination now, obviously, I can't give out specific medical advice, but in general, it's incredibly important to have a healthful lifestyle, which in my mind is plant-based nutrition, regular exercise. Medications are critically important as well. And that includes uh, a cholesterol-lowering pill, um, a, 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 some kind of antiplatelet agent like an aspirin or something like that, possibly other medications that may be indicated in your case. So those things are uh, all incredibly important to help lower your risk. And even in Esselstyn's study, where uh, they had a 0.6% event rate over about three and a half or so years, and you know it's a case series, so the, the precision of that is not as precise as a randomized trial. So you know maybe even a factor in a fudge factor, maybe it's a 5% event rate, which is still incredibly low, but you're not gonna be bulletproof. It's incredibly important for you to do all of those things to keep on lowering your risk. And in terms of cleaning out the arteries, you may be able to make the health of your arteries uh, much more healthful, but there's a lot of debate going on right now as to actually whether it will make the blockages go away. And we don't unequivocally know that. It may not, uh, but that's okay because it's still gonna make your arteries healthier, um, we believe, and it's gonna, you know, we know from a variety of epidemiologic and randomized trials that being healthier will lower your future risk. So I don't think I can ever tell you that we'll know that your blockages will go away. But what I do know is that you are doing an amazing job lowering your risk by having a healthier lifestyle and taking appropriate medications. Right. Well, Kathy says, when is a carotid artery study recommended? Is it based on risk factors or symptoms? It's large, largely based on symptoms. And we, uh, you know, if, if, if on a physical exam, someone listens over the artery in your neck and they hear a, what we call a brewery that suggests a blockage, then they may get an ultrasound. You know, if someone who's had a stroke or a transient ischemic attack, which is like a baby stroke, they may get it looking for a major blockage there. Now, there are times when people are asymptomatic and they'll get it kind of as a screening tool. And that falls into the category of when someone's an intermediate risk do we want to start them on a statin or not? And that there's a variety of ways that we can define that risk. Um, you know, whether it's with a blood test or a calcium score, but the ultrasound isn't typically used in that setting, but it can be, some people do. Um, so more commonly it's used with symptoms or uh, to, uh, you know, help di potentially diagnose a problem that you have. Dr. Esfeld, you actually can accept patients at Montefiore, correct? And do you ever do any telemedicine? Um, we 100% are accepting new patients. I'm accepting new patients. Thank you for asking. Um, uh, we do do telemedicine for sure, but I'm only able to do it in the state of New York because uh, that's where my license ends. Um, and uh, so, you know, if someone is interested in either setting up a New York telemedicine or coming to see us in clinic, 
the office phone number is 718-920-5197, 718-920-5197. And, you know, through a series of annoying <laughs> things to push through, you'll be able to set up an appointment. Sorry. Great. Thank you. That's okay. I just need to thank Heather for her super chat donation. So uh, some people, they send in questions and obviously sometimes they're really long, but I'm going to consolidate. My understanding of this question from Gail is she's at a good weight. She exercises, she eats right, but her triglycerides are slowly creeping up. Is every, all the other numbers are good. Is this something that we have to be concerned about? Cause I do hear people say that a lot. Why are my triglycerides going up if I'm on a plant-based diet? Triglycerides matter. Um, they, uh, uh, you know, higher is worse. I've seen that too sometimes when people are on a plant-based diet and many other metrics get better, but triglycerides go up a little bit. I don't have a perfect explanation for that. Some of it may be is if a lot of simple carbs are working their way in uh, to the diet, or if you've eaten right before uh, you got the blood test because triglycerides go up quite a bit postprandially. Um, that could have something to do with it, but if none of those things are the case, don't quite uh, know exactly why that is, but I have seen that in a few situations. And in um, some, sometimes, uh, you know, if all the other metrics are good, it depends on how high high is. You know, if it's 110, certainly that's below the 150 limit that we kind of consider quote high. If it's 110 and it had been 98, not going to sweat it. And there is also a, just a natural undulation in these things. If I check my cholesterol now and four seconds later, it's not going to be the same. Yeah, um, great. But, uh, you know, but if it went up to now, it's like 330. That's a little strange. Um, and I'd have to start exploring why. And there's other issues that can like thyroid issues or kidney issues that can contribute to that you'd want to explore. Sometimes we put people on uh, uh, omega-3s to help. Uh, lower uh, triglycerides in the appropriate setting. So it's something that if, it, if it's meaningfully increased, I'd, I'd explore it with your regular doctor because there are some potentially reversible issues that could contribute to that. Thank you. Uh, Susan says, is it possible for someone who had a heart attack to ever be considered free of heart disease? Um, I think the short answer to that is, is no. Um, now, it depends, and then, and then there's more nuance to it. Now, people who have had heart attacks, people who've had heart transplants can go on and run marathons and do all kinds of stuff. So in a, from a very big picture sense, not saying specifically for this case, if that's happened in this case, that that can happen, but people go on and do marathons and triathlons and all kinds of stuff after having a diagnosis of heart disease. And now in terms of a heart attack, there's like kind of two general categories. One is when there was plaque rupture, like we went through, that's the overwhelming majority of them. And then there's some, like if someone's like really sick, they've got a really bad infection or they've got a ton of bleeding or something and the, the, the heart has a ton of stress on it or not as enough oxygen because of all the bleeding, you can have a little bit of heart damage, which isn't a garden variety heart attack. So maybe in that such situation, you could sort of say it's not really heart disease, it's kind of nebulous, but the, but the one where there's plaque rupture from a, a, the traditional way to have a heart attack, that's, that's heart disease. So, but you can still be way healthy. Great, thank you. So this question, uh, Travis says, why do vegans still get heart attacks if only meat causes heart attacks? It's not just meat that causes heart attacks, right? No, it's not just meat. And, you know, uh, so 
so it's a very complex, complicated milieu. And basically, in some respects, you can say we're playing the odds. If you're living a healthy lifestyle, you are playing the odds and profoundly lowering your risk of having a future event. But you're not going to be bulletproof. It's not going to be zero. And there are lots of things that go into it. Genes matter. Genes go into it. And some of them we can't change. Like I can eat as many carrots as I want. I'm never going to change my eye color. You know, some genes are just to make your cholesterol higher. They may make your blood pressure higher. And those things matter. Pollution matters. You know, like I live in New York City. Uh, you know, I, I imagine my cardiovascular risk would be lower if I lived in rural Montana because there's less air pollution. So there's some uh, sort of social things and some genetic things that, you know, can't really change in the day to day. Um, and then, of course, you know, vegan is broadly defined like that study from Satija we were talking about. Like you can eat sugar cookies all day. I'm not saying this person is but you can eat sugar cookies all day and you're vegan, or you can eat kale all day. There's, there's a big difference between a minimally processed and a highly processed plant-based diet. And look, I walk the walk, but hey, I have vegan junk food from time to time. Like I am not immune to that kind of thing. So I am not a perfect minimally processed. I mean, the closest one that I know of is Esselstyn, who as far as I know, only has like 10 Reese's peanut butter cups on New Year's Eve, according to his book. Um, so he's the most perfect one that I know of. Um, and I don't know of anyone else, including me, who doesn't have the occasional vegan junk food. Well, then you haven't met Dr. Alan Goldhammer. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Uh, thank you for correcting that. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, uh, let's see. BG says, can diet and lifestyle alleviate begemony? I, I don't know if I said that right. Or does one have to stay on medication for lives? Are there alternatives to medication if one is not tolerating it due to low heart rate? I don't know what that means, but I'm assuming you do. Yeah, so, so uh, the short answer is that we don't know. Bigemony is, uh, it can be largely two sources. You have an, uh, a normal electrical beat, then an abnormal electrical beat. So every other, bi, normal, abnormal, normal, abnormal. And the abnormal can come from the top part of the heart or the bottom part. That's like that's bigemony. Normal, abnormal, normal, abnormal. And eating that, we don't know if a plant-based diet can prevent that. Um, and there's hypothetical reason to think it may, because if you eat more plant-based, you can improve the health of your blood vessels, lower blood vessels, lower blood pressure, uh, uh, um, lower inflammation, and those things can reduce pressure on the heart. And sometimes increasing intracardiac pressure or work can trigger these kinds of abnormal heart rhythms. And we know in people who have another kind of heart rhythm problem called atrial fibrillation, if they get it ablated or zapped to make it go away and they lose 10% or more of their body weight, now that's any way they lose it, it doesn't matter how, but they lose 10% or more, they have less recurrence than if they don't. So there may be some reason to think that eating more healthily can help with bigemony, but we don't know the answer to that. That's completely hypothetical. Great, thanks. Rachel says, what do you say to people that insist that extra virgin olive oil is healthy? And Travis, who's watching, says he consumes it and doesn't have any effect, any deleterious effects on him. I understand that this, this um, is an important issue and it's one that's bizarrely triggering uh, to me. 
Um, and I'm super close with Dr. Esselstyn. I think he's an amazing guy. I love uh, his work. Um, and I know the study that he cites uh, with uh, trouble with olive oil. Um, but there are also many, many studies that show that with extra virgin olive oil, that it actually has a variety of improvements in health metrics from inflammation and uh, uh, other uh, uh, omega-3 levels in various uh, cells like red blood cells or things. So um, I'm of a mind that a little bit of a healthful oil, I'm not talking about like coconut oil or palm oil that's like you know, 90% saturated fat or whatever, but a little bit of olive oil is not a problem. And I have a lot of patients and it may even be helpful. What we need when we don't have is a low fat plant-based diet versus like a moderate healthy fat plant-based diet study and comparing them head to head. So one of the reasons that there can be a lot of back and forth is because we don't unequivocally have the answer. If we unequivocally had the answer, then there'd be no room for back and forth. But we don't. Um, and so there's, there's, I do believe there's more data to the benefit of a healthful oil, extra virgin olive oil. I'm very comfortable with my patients have it. I have a lot of patients who've had crazy benefits um, and uh, they're having a little bit of oil. And I have some who don't have oil and they also have crazy benefits too. Um, and the ones who don't have any oil, I am careful to ask them to have take some kind of omega-3, because uh, that is important for brain health. Uh, so uh, that's where I stand on the oil thing. Uh, I, I do think a little bit of the healthy oil is, is fine. All right, well, thank you. Well, we, a lot of people are saying they wanna watch this presentation again. It was really excellent. And I really appreciate you taking the time because I know you're a real busy, you're, you know, you, you're a doctor, you're working, you're seeing patients. Well, thank you. And, and uh, it's been an absolute honor to be here with you, Chef AJ, um, to see you again, even though it's virtually, but I guess that's how you see anybody these days now with COVID. Um, and uh, wonderful to be with your incredible audience. So thank you so much for having me. Uh, and hopefully it won't be another biblical six, seven years before uh, we can do this again. Right. And thank you for all the work you're doing at Montefiore. And that, that, I mean, that thing you do with, for five hours, that sounds in, like an incredible thing for a patient to be able to, to do. Thank you. We're incredibly proud of it. And I should say that we've had to have it on hold since COVID started. So we, I don't know exactly when I can start that back up. You weren't able to do that one virtually, huh? No, but we were just talking about actually like literally the other day of make, we don't, yeah, we don't, we can't do it virtually. It's like, it would be uh, very complicated for some of the patients in the Bronx to be able to do that virtually, uh, but we are at least going to try to do something, uh, uh, put like a YouTube video up or something. You know, you mentioned that you the patients at your hospital now can get a, a vegan meal. Does it? How does it taste? It tastes pretty good. Like it, you know, it's not a two-star Michelin thing, but it's uh, it's pretty good. We taste tested it. Like we put a lot of effort into it. We got the chefs from all the different uh, uh, hospitals. And we try to make it, uh, you know, ethnically uh, uh, appropriate. And like, well, look, and we had we had a factor in a lot of things like cost. Like at first, I'm like, well, why don't we have a little thing of hummus? Like, okay, cool. Oh, costs too much. Okay, can't do it. And so you tailor it to that. We made it better, made it better. So I think it's pretty good. Um, and we we served it to the faculty. You know, they they serve it in the cafeteria. They used to. COVID, everything's changed. Everything's prepackaged and stuff. But before COVID, for years, they would serve it in the hospital cafeteria and it would stay with they tell me it sells would sell out all the time so i think it's pretty good 
That sounds great. Well, thank you. It was just great catching up with you, Dr. Osfeld. Thank you. Likewise, Chef Beijing. All right. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.